0: This semester, uh, on Tuesday nights, we're going to be going through the book of Colossians. And we're going to go through the book of Colossians because the issues that that church is struggling with are pertinent to us today. Because the issues that they're struggling with are, really, how does Christian maturity happen? How do we grow up in the gospel? How do we change? How do we mature? And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to read the first half of Paul's introduction in the letter. Uh, When he writes to churches, he usually the first thing he does is he gives thanks, and then he prays for them. And in his thanksgiving and prayer, you usually get actually a picture of all the major themes he's going to address in the letter. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at the thanksgiving, and then next week we're going to look at the prayer for the church at Colossae, and those really will be an introduction for the rest of the semester. So read with me from the Word of God. This is Paul writing to the church at Colossae. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, that because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and is growing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved uh, fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and He has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray that He would teach us. Lord, we want to change and we don't know how. And You're beginning to explain to us how Christian change happens. And I pray now, dear God, that in my fumbling words and my fumbling thoughts that Your Word and Your Spirit will be more powerful um, than me, and that we would all hear from you, and that your Holy Spirit would be at work. In your name, we pray. Amen. Have y'all? I'm sure nobody's ever had this experience. Have y'all ever had that? I'm never going to do this again. Moment. N- yeah, maybe, yeah. May- maybe one or two. Yeah. Uh, that, like, all right, that was it. That was the one. That was the last Krispy Kreme entire bag of krillers. From now on, it's just going to be one at a time. Um, But whatever it is, you know, lighthearted things, maybe not lighthearted things, that, like, never going to do this again moment. And maybe if we've also had the, like, all right, this is it. I'm starting today, you know? I'm going to do this moment, too, you know? This is it. This is the one. I'm going to do it. And you feel that willpower, and you know it's going to be the one. And, of course, in both of those situations... What always happens? just run into ourselves again. You feel like sincere in that strength of will in that moment, and you find yourself doing the same, I'm never going to do this again moment, and you find yourself in the same, all right, this time I'm really starting moment. And what that reveals, that recurring experience, is really this. We want to change, but we don't know how. We really want to change. We really want to grow into what we think is maturity and what it means for us to be mature Christian adults. But we don't know how it happens. And what the book of Colossians is really dealing with is it's dealing with a church that's struggling with what Christian maturity looks like. And what we'll actually address later in the semester we see in chapter 2 is kind of two ways that we create a new definition of Christian maturity that actually the Gospel doesn't know anything of. We don't know how to change, but we want to change. And so oftentimes what we do is we, is we actually alter the definition of what Christian maturity and Christian change looks like. And two of the things they do in the Church of Colossae is this. They say Christian maturity is activity. Christian maturity is activity. Waller and I were hanging out the other day and we were talking about how like, man, if you go to church and you don't drink, people just assume you're a Christian. Okay, how many people know Christians that don't drink? We all know Christians that don't drink. How many people know non-believers that don't drink? We all know non-believers that don't drink. It's not a mark of faith in Christ. How many people know Christians go to church? How many, Christians know, how many people know unbelievers that don't go to church? It's not a mark of faith in Christ. But that's the way we've defined Christian maturity and Christian change. is activity. If I'm committed to things, if I'm in the most prayer groups, if I'm in a small group, that's it. Those are things I can look to it and be like, yeah, see, I really am a mature Christian. And that's exactly what's going on in the church at Colossae. But what happens when Christian maturity becomes defined by activity is really in a lot of ways two things happen. You either eventually burn out or you just crush everybody with your list of box that you're checking off. Because nobody, well, she's not in a small group. I think she's Christian, but she's not in a small group. Well, I think they're a Christian, but they drink. You know, And you crush everybody with your boxes. So sometimes we define activity as Christian maturity. Another thing that's going on in church in Colossae, but is relevant today is we define Christian maturity by feelings, by feelings by what you feel, these kind of positive feeling experiences maybe it's in worship, maybe it's in your devotional time and Christian maturity is when you have these positive, powerful feelings Okay, that doesn't reconcile with the book of Psalms at all God gives us songs to sing He actually gives us songs to sing when we don't feel anything, there are books in the Psalms um, Psalm 38 is a great one Psalm uh, 88 or 86 is a great one, where you're actually allowed to go to God and say, I don't feel anything. Those are mature Christian prayers to go to God and say, I don't feel anything. And if the gospel maturity rests in our feelings and our positive kind of emotional experience of God, how insecure is our entire Christian life going to be? Deeply insecure, because life is hard. So Christian maturity can't be activity and it can't be positive feelings. If it were true, then any student organization kind of can be a Christian student organization because all kinds of student organizations are doing lots of activity and people are having positive experiences. Whether or not Jesus is a part of it or not. So then what is the key to maturity? What is Christian change? That's what we're going to be dealing with this semester. And what the beginning of the book of Colossians begins to tell us is this. Here's the key. Kind of being facetious, kind of not. This is the super secret key to spiritual maturity. It's the gospel. It's just the gospel. And what we're doing tonight is beginning to see how the gospel changes us and what it produces in us. How it works in us and then what it is that it actually produces. The first thing, how it works... How's the gospel work in us? First, we've got to define what the gospel is, and it's simply this. There's a lot of ways we can simplify it. It's what the Father does and says for His children. That's what the gospel is. It's what the loving Heavenly Father does for His children and says to His children. See, the first thing Paul calls the gospel in this passage, he says, we thank God. We thank God for your faith, and we thank God for your love. And where does he say the faith and love come from? He said, He says... The faith and love that are caused by the hope that is laid up for you. By the hope that is laid up for you. See, Christianity is not the hope that you laid up for yourself, by yourself. The Christian hope is a hope that is laid up for you by someone else. Namely, our Heavenly Father. And it was costly for him, and he went to great lengths to secure it. And it was not something you qualified yourself for by your feelings or by your activity. It was something God did on behalf of his children out of pure love. And he sacrificed his own son that we could be forgiven and restored into a perfect relationship with him. It is laid up for you by God, and thus it is secure. It's secure. And that's one of the scariest things actually to believe is that our hope is secure. It's secure now. I know how you feel. You don't feel all here tonight. And tomorrow you're going to be struggling with things. And and you're you're going to be prone, just like I am prone, to then measure like, am I doing enough? Do I feel the right way? And what Paul is saying is, it's not about your activity. It's not about your feelings. It's about what God did for you. Your hope is secure. That's one of the scariest things for us actually to believe in. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none. It's done. It's wiped away. With You can't earn your condemnation back if you are in Christ Jesus. It's done. It was taken care of. Your sins are forgiven. You don't, it's not wishful thinking, maybe they'll be forgiven if I live this out right. They're done. You're free. Your hope is laid up. It's secure. It's something done for you by the Father. And this is one of the hardest things to believe because what we're prone to think tomorrow is that we've actually re-earned our condemnation. And so we're prone to think, all right, now we've got to re-earn our security again. But the gospel is what God has done for His people. It is the hope that He laid up for us, and for that reason we trust that it's secure. But it's not just what He does, he also, it's also what He says. How did they come to know about the hope laid up for them? Paul goes on, verse 5, Of this you heard before in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you, as indeed it's come to the whole world, and it's bearing fruit and it's growing in the whole world just as it is among you. God's deeds are tied to His words. The gospel is what God's done for us, but also it's His words to us. The gospel literally is... The good news, that's what that word means. Paul says, you are growing in faith and you're growing in love because of the hope laid up for you which you heard of. Because it came to you as news and truth and in grace. Listen, this is how the gospel works changing us. God's saving works and saving words go hand in hand. They're not separate from each other. And we have to hear and understand, like Paul says, as you heard it and you understood the grace of God, the gospel. And they had to hear and understand these things. And the heart of gospel change is really this. The way it happens is when we are renewed and we grow in our understanding of what our Father does for us and what our Father says to us. And what Paul says is, look about what he talks about Christian growth looks like. He says, Verse 5 again, You have heard before in the word of truth the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit. The gospel's bearing fruit. Do you get it? It's the gospel that's bearing fruit here. It's the gospel that's working change in their lives. Not them. They're not willing themselves to Christian fruit. It's the gospel at work at them that bears fruit. The good news of what God has done and what God has said to His children is what changes us. And the whole therapeutic community is actually built on this premise. Because a lot of what goes on in counseling is you know what you talk about? You talk about what your parents said and what your parents did to you because those things shape us. You might be able to think of times of something your father said to you that was amazing, he told you he was proud of you, he told you that he loved you. You might be able to think of things father did to you that were horrible. Things that he did to you, things that he said to you, his disappointment in you. And those Those comments we all remember, and they affect us, and they shape us. Okay, that's the same principle at work here. These are God's words for us, what He thinks of us. These are God's works for us, what He thinks of us. And they work the same change in us. You see, when our earthly father says something to us, His words have power. They shape us. They change us. We react to them. We define ourselves by what our father thinks about us in a lot of ways. But His words are weak. They're just puffs of air. God's words are so powerful that when He speaks, things like planets exist when His words come out. He speaks creation and being. That's the kind of power His words have. And the spirit of what your earthly father has said to you impacts you. The sentiment, the spirit that he that, that comes with His comments or the things that He might have said to you or done to you, whether it's good or bad, really impacts you. But His spirit at most is Sentiment. The heavenly father spirit is so powerful that it's actually a person. What the father says to his children, and what the father does for his children shapes us. And our whole life actually testifies to that reality. This is, here's a picture of how it works. This is, we had a sweet summer with the girls teaching them how to swim. And they were really fearful of the pool. And, uh, we really had this very similar experience with all four girls. They were all very fearful. And, uh, Shelby, in some ways, was the most fearful. Hopefully she doesn't listen to this eventually. Um, She didn't want to get in the pool. She was scared to death. She actually uh, fell in a lake when she was about a year and a half old. She's been scared of water since then. She didn't want to get in the pool. And she would stand two or three feet from the edge of the pool and look at us while we were in the pool. And I would say, Shelby, look at me. Look me in the eye. You can trust me. I'll keep you safe. Come here. Take my hand. She wouldn't come. And so you know what I did? I said, Shelby, look at my eyes. You can trust me. The water will not get you. Come here. You know what she did? She didn't come. So you know what I did? I reached out and I took her hand. I said, Shelby, come here. And I brought her towards the pool. And she resisted. And she came towards the pool. And I said, Shelby, you can trust me. You can trust me. I will keep you safe. And she didn't want to get in. so what I did is I grabbed her hips and I said, Shelby, jump to me. She didn't want to jump. I said, Shelby, jump to me, look in my eyes, and say, Daddy, I trust you. And she would look in my eyes, and she gave the emptiest, most hollow, Daddy, I trust you ever. <laughs> and I said, Shelby, jump to you, I'm going to keep you safe. And you know what she did? She jumped to me, but you know what I did? I picked her up, and I brought her to myself. And she was freaked out in the pool, and her their fingernails just like, her shredding skin off of your shoulders and your forearms, because she was more scared at that point, point. and I said, Shelby. And I get her attention, and I say, look at my eyes daddy's keeping you safe isn't he and she could freak out and said shelby you can trust daddy say daddy i trust you and she gave me this daddy i trust you that has like just this tiny ounce of belief in it finally and you know what it was a process and it took a long period of time but the be- the end of the summer was one of our best moments it was when shelby was running to the pool towards the end of the summer and she loved jumping in the water and she said daddy look i trust you Best moments of parenthood. Like, I'm done right there. <laughs> she celebrated how much she trusted me. Here's my question How did she change? What did she do to change? She changed because I told her about my love for her, and because I told her over and over again that she can trust me, and because I demonstrated the truth of those words with my hands. That's how she changed. That's gospel change. God's works on our behalf and His words to us. This is the application. Can you expect any change to take place in your life if you're not constantly being washed in the Father's words about the things that He does for you? Should you expect any change? One of the things you might hear in R.E.F. from time to time is, I just tell people, stop reading your Bible to try to make God happy. Stop reading your Bible to try to make God happy. And I stand on that. And I want to say it again. But I'll tell you this. Read your Bible the same way you read a letter from your father or a letter from your boyfriend or girlfriend. Just this past weekend, Elizabeth and I were going through old stuff, just letters and just nostalgia and all that stuff. And I found some letters that my dad wrote to me while Elizabeth and I were dating. And in those letters, he challenged me on some things. And in those letters he told me about how much he loved me and how, much, how proud he was of me. Here's my question. Why do you think I read those letters? Did I read them to make him happy? I did it to bask in and to learn from and have my heart warmed by his love for me. And I walked away from those letters a better father to my own children if those letters had sat and gathered dust and had never looked at them because, I don't want to be a legalist about this, then guess what? I wouldn't have been nourished by my Father's love for me. Don't expect change to take place if you're unwilling to encounter your Father's words to you about the things that He's doing for you. That's how the Gospel works changing us works changing us the same way your own father and your own mother have shaped you by their words and their works. Only God's words are more powerful and His works are saving, recreating resurrection works. It's the true story of grace and power that changes us. And what does it produce? That's how it works. What does it produce? Paul begins the passage by thanking God for the things that are at work in the Colossians' life. Thank you, We always thank God, the Father of your Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Now, where did the faith and love come from? The faith and love because of the hope laid up for you that you heard about. Because of the things God did for you and the things that God told you. The fruit of the Christian life here is faith in Jesus and love. Now, here's the next question. We can think of people who don't drink who are believers and we think of people who don't drink that are unbelievers. Can you think of anybody who has faith in Jesus that's not a believer? I I mean, you know, I don't want to be too bold here, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say, when we pray for you, we heard about your faith in Jesus. Maybe that's what a mark of a mature Christian is, is. trust in Jesus. But it's not only that, it's love. See, the true marks of Christian maturity are not activity- an experience. There are a ton of other places you can go to do activities and have positive experiences besides anything that's remotely Christian. You can do it in a thousand different arenas. People have positive experiences all over the place. What I hope is that people look at RUF and say, those people have faith. And those people love in a way they don't understand. They have faith in Jesus. So what is faith? Faith is this, I'm kind of borrowing this from a friend of mine, Sean Slate, but it's kind of simple. Faith is trusting Jesus, and it's trusting His Word. Faith is trusting Jesus against everything the world tells you that, you know what, it's better to give than to receive. Faith is trusting Jesus when He says, love your enemy. It doesn't make sense in this world, it doesn't make sense as an American. Love your enemy. Faith is trusting Jesus when He tells you that. Faith is trusting Jesus when He says, Confess your sins so that you may be healed. He actually says, Confess your sins to one another. That He sent His church not just to confess your sins to Him, but to each other, that you may be healed. Faith is trusting Jesus when He says that. But the whole world tells us, Keep your dark hidden. And our sin tells us, Keep your dark hidden. Faith is trusting Jesus when he says in the book of Hebrews, you need to submit to a local body of elders. Faith is trusting Jesus when what he's saying is, you need to be submitting to the leadership in a local church. That means in a local church. Faith is trusting Jesus when he says you should always tell the truth. Faith is trusting Jesus when he says that all of sexuality is amazing and designed to be taking place inside the covenant of marriage. And our sin in the world tells us the opposite. Faith is trusting Jesus when He speaks. Faith is trusting Jesus and resting in Jesus when He says that He is working together all things for the good of His people. And what that means is Jesus is working for the good of His people when you don't get married, when it doesn't happen for you as soon as you thought. It's resting in Jesus and trusting that He's working things for the good of His people when you can't get a job or your dad can't get a job. That Jesus is actually working for the good of His people when that man or that boyfriend or even a woman took something they couldn't take from you or they shouldn't take from you. That G- that faith is trusting Jesus that what Satan and what Man intended for evil, he will use for good. And if you want evidence of how Jesus uses the worst, most darkest moments, soul destroying moments for good, look at the crucifixion. Men hated him and said, We're going to kill him, and that's how God saved the world. Faith is trusting that in the darkest moments, Jesus is still working for the good of his people. Faith is trusting Jesus when he says, Your sins are forgiven, they're done. For any of you who have received forgiveness, He offers it. Faith is that you have, uh, faith is trusting Jesus when He says you are His righteousness. That it is yours, that God has actually already passed His verdict on you. And His verdict is, you are perfect, you are righteous, you are everything I intended you to be. And when you feel like, well that's not me, of course it's not you. Because Jesus gave it to you, and God judged you based on His perfection. And it's, the judgment has passed and it's done. Jesus is, uh, Trusting Jesus is resting in that. And trusting Jesus is scary. And living in faith is scary because faith feels like you're stepping out into midair. It feels like, He says, to give stuff away. Like tons of it. It doesn't make sense. He says, love your enemy. That doesn't make sense. My enemy might trounce all over me. Yeah, they might. Faith is going to feel like stepping out and there's not going to be anything there. And faith is going to feel like doing the opposite of what the world and what your own mind and heart are going to tell you is reasonable and right. And faith really fundamentally is setting aside your own interpretation of the world, your own interpretation of God and yourself and who Jesus is and submitting and trusting to Jesus' Word and what He says about those things. Faith means that you stop justifying yourself, you stop justifying your anger, your self-righteousness, or your perfectionism, or your materialism, or justifying your moral missteps, or your racism, or just the stink that is all of us. Faith means you stop trying to justify it, you stop trying to explain those things away by comparing yourselves to others, because there are other people who are worse. You stop trying to explain those away because of your circumstances, you didn't understand where I was. Faith means that you stop trying to cover them up with enough good works. Because what faith is, is a cry to Jesus just saying, This is me, and I have no excuse, and all I have is you, Jesus. Now, how can you trust Him? How can you have that kind of faith? Paul shows us, look at the hope He laid up for you. That's what gives us faith. Will a God who sacrificed His Son for you who gave His most precious Son for you? Well, that God who paid that price to restore you to Him—is He going to lie to you? Is He going to fool you? Is He going to seek your destruction? Look what He paid for you. You can trust Him. Look at the hope that He laid up for you. That's what gives us faith. God produces faith, but it also produces love. And love—I'll beat up at the Democrats at some point—loves the most unRepublican idea ever. If you're a Republican, you should feel uncomfortable when you read the Bible, the way the Bible talks about love. I'm going to up Democrats at that point. Libertarians are too easy. <laughs> we don't even have to go there. Because love is this. Love is pouring out your time, is pouring out your energy, is pouring out your resources and your emotions, and not one hour a week, but over a lifetime, for other people. And not because, not because they're lovable. And not because they're easy to deal with. And not because there's maybe a socially or professionally advantageous relationship you can have with them. You pour it out because they need it. Even if they're actually responsible for their neediness. And you're not going to do it for conscience sake. You're not going to do it to pat it on the back. You're not going to do it so that you can feel better about who you are. You'll do it because you just weep for their pain. And if nobody ever knows what you do for this person, and if that person never appreciates, you'll never second guess your desire to love for them. They might not even appreciate it for it. But it doesn't matter. Love doesn't require that. And what can produce that kind of love? It's the good news of the things our Father has done for us and the fact that He continues to tell us about it. It is the hope that's laid up for us because you see what happens is, love begets love. That's where that love comes from. It comes from other love. Love begets love. Love stays. Love is enduring. It's easy to love difficult people for a little bit of while, for a little bit of time. Anybody do that? Love sticks around. This is a testimony of two thousand years of patience. So a year with a hard roommate, if that's tough for you, which is tough for everybody, lead this. This is 2,000 years of patience with people that have sinned in more egregious ways against God than your roommate ever could sin against you, even if your roommate really is evil and sins against you in horrible ways. I believe, I'm sure that they have. This is thousands of years of divine patience, and it's all extended to you. Love stays. It doesn't just stay. It also seeks out. Love doesn't just happen upon what comes across its path, the people who happen to be you. That's not what Jesus did. If that's what Jesus did, He would have never left the throne in heaven. Jesus went out and He sought people to love. Love seeks out. Love goes beyond your comfort zone. Love confronts. It's not all warm fuzzy. Love loves the object so much that it will not allow the object to destroy itself. And so love says hard things, even if it's going to be hurtful to say hard things even if you're chanting a relationship. And love doesn't hope for recognition. and It doesn't hope to get paid back because love, gospel love, is overflow of love already received. It is overflow of the gospel, of the hope that is laid up for us. This semester we're going to examine not how we change ourselves, we're going to get a five steps to being a better Christian, but how the Father changes us and how the good news about what He's doing for us and His words to us change us. And you're not going to understand what we're doing. And you're not going to experience change if you're unwilling to engage the Gospel, to marinate in it, to encounter it, to look at your Father in His eyes and hear Him say, you can trust Me. Let me show you how you can trust Me. Let me show you what I've done for you. You can trust me. you're not in Jesus tonight. the salvation he offers is shockingly free. and the love he offers is shockingly free, and the good news of what he's done for his children is for you. All you have to do is ask for it. Let's pray.